0: Amen. Well, welcome, guys, to renovate. How's everybody doing? Okay, so-so. That's all right. If you're a guest, well, thank you. If you're a guest, welcome to renovate. We are uh, super excited that you're here. I personally would love to meet you and chat afterwards. So if you want to hang around, come on up and introduce yourself. I would love to get to know you. Um, before we jump into the sermon tonight, I have a few quick announcements. The first one is. We're having our end-of-the-year Christmas bash on December 12th, Friday night. We're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be at Mainstay Farm. Any of you all ever been to Mainstay Farm? Raise your hand. Okay. Pretty cool place. We're going to have hay rides, We're going to have music and line dancing. We're going to cater Babe's Chicken. Um, I think we've already had 30 people register, and so we're going to have a fun night, and uh, it's going to be a great way to finish out our semester, so... If you're interested in being a part of that, we have an uh, information desk right out here that Sarah Baker, my assistant, did a fantastic job of decorating. So if you have a debit card, we can slide the debit card. There is a, a cost for the food and, and renting the location. So, But we're we're going to have a great time. So if you're interested, you can go out there to get more information. And I think you should have received a little flyer on the way in. So anyways, I hope to see you there. We're going to have a good time. I'm going to bring my wife and kiddos. And so... It's going to be fun. The second thing is, um, let me just give you a little uh, glimpse of what the schedule is going to be over these next uh, four weeks, over Christmas break. Next week is going to be our last renovate for this year. Okay, so we're going to finish out our Comparison Trap series, and then we're going to be off until January 21st. I knew that was coming. I mean, I I anticipated that, and so I have answers for that, because I was like, that's what I'm going to hear when I say that. But there's really two reasons why we're doing that. Number one, this is um, the first semester we've ever had of Renovate. For those of you who are new, we launched this thing August 20th. It happened very quickly, and we got this thing together. We got the plane off the ground to cruising altitude, and so I want to take Christmas break to really stop evaluate where we are, evaluate where we need to be. And so I think those extra couple weeks will be crucial. And secondly, I made the announcement a couple weeks ago that the college ministry is merging with Life Stage 2. And with that, there's going to be a lot of planning and organization that needs to happen. And the college students aren't coming back until the, the uh, weekend before the 21st. And so I thought, since we're merging these two ministries, why don't we just launch it all together as one team and uh, so I think it's going to be a great night. And for those of you who are a little skeptical about the college thing, I, I truly believe that this is the right thing for our ministry. I, I, I really believe that the college ministry is the start of being a young adult, not the end of being a, uh, a kid, a student. You know, with Life Stage 1, you have the middle school and high school. I just think college fits with Life Stage 2. I think that they're going to be a big part of what we're doing here. And I want to promise you that the vision that we have put in place, all of our leadership about what Renovate is all about, a place for broken people to come and find restoration, is not going to change. Ben Fuquay is our college pastor, and he is 100% on board. So I think they're going to bring energy and life and excitement. And I think having Ben Fuquay on our team is going to be a huge asset. So... I'm excited about it, but if you, are, if you do have concerns, I would love to chat with you about that. If you have encouragements, I'd love to hear that too, both sides. But um, anyways, that's what it's going to look like over this next month. And I will say that that doesn't mean we're not going to have other events that we'll be doing. So we're going to try to have some dinners and some get-togethers and some fun times between now and then for those of you who are in town. So with that being said, we are in part two of the Comparison Trap series. Part one was a week and a half ago, and what I really wanted to do the first week is convince all of you that all of us have the exact same problem. We all obsessively look to our left and our right to compare ourselves with other people. There's not one person in this room that has not fallen into the comparison trap at some point in time, and that hasn't done it numerous times. It is an affliction that we all have. We constantly look around to see where other people are so that we can see where we need to be, and it's a trap. And the reason it's a trap is because there's always somebody who's better. And we talked about this last time. There's always somebody who's smarter. There's always somebody who's prettier. There's always somebody who makes more money, who's more successful, or has a thinner waistline, or you fill in the blank. Always. And so you're constantly pursuing something that's just out of your reach because there's somebody who's better. And then on the other side of it, there's always somebody who's worse. And so we love to say, well, I might not be where they are, but at least I'm not where they are. At least I'm a little uh, more successful than this person, or at least I don't live where they live, or on and on it goes. We get caught up in this trap. And then for the sad few of us that are perfectionists, better's not enough. We want to be what? we want to be the best. And for those people who have to be the best at everything they do, it's it's not a fun life because you're never going to be the best. There's always somebody that's one step ahead. And so we're in this comparison trap and we all look somewhere or to somebody to find our identity. And so I left you with a few questions last last week or week before last. I wanted to kind of leave you hanging to think about it. So here were those questions. Who or what is going to bring me true contentment? Ask yourself that. Who or what is going to bring me true contentment? Where am I going to look to find joy and peace and meaning and significance? Where are you going to look? And then finally, where do I go to find my identity, to find who I am? I can tell you for most of my life, my identity was in baseball. I was known from from 12 years old on, that's Tyler, the baseball player. That was my identity, and I loved that identity, until baseball started being not very nice to me. Baseball started being cruel to me, and it started um, pressing me and pushing me, and it wasn't giving me what I needed, and I just kept chasing for it, and it was always just out of my reach, my, my dreams of being a professional Major League Baseball player, and that was my identity, and I had a lot to lose. And ironically, I didn't play baseball well when I thought of it as that's who I was. I saw an article years ago, and I looked it up online and and found it, but Tom Brady, who everyone in here should know, he's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, but this interview was done on 60 Minutes. I see some heads knowing, like, why do I need to know that? I don't like football, and I don't know that. But in 2008, he was on a 60 Minutes interview, and he was 30 years old. He um, his his team was sixteen and zero and entering into the Super Bowl. They were about to have the second undefeated season in the history of the NFL. And excuse me, in the history of the NFL, he had three MVPs, three Super Bowls. He was dating a supermodel, one of the most popular supermodels in Brazil, Giselle Bündchen. He had everything. He was one of the richest players in sports. He was the quarterback. He was good looking. He had money. He had esteem. He had, he had recognition. Other players liked him. And he had a beautiful wife. He had everything. So in this interview, he says this, which was pretty shocking. He, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. This is someone who has everything according to the world standards, and yet he still needed just a little bit more. He still didn't arrive. He still didn't have that meaning and purpose and significance that he was chasing after, and he had it all. And then I saw a quote from Jim Carrey, who, Dumb and Dumber, greatest movie of all time. I don't know about Dumb and Dumber 2. I haven't seen it yet, so I'll reserve my judgment on that. But listen to this. He's another man who went from rags to riches and has millions and millions of dollars. He says... I wish everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they know that it's not the answer. So this is Jim Carrey who had everything and he says, I wish, I wish everybody could have what I have. I wish everybody who says, man, I wish I was like Jim Carrey, I wish they all could have what I have because then they would realize that it's not enough. And we spend so much of our life looking to our left and our right, trying to figure out where everybody else is so that we can know where we need to be because we're not content where we are. And so the question is that I've been leaving hanging out there, what's the answer? How do we avoid this comparison trap? How do we stop looking around us and at others to determine where we need to be? Where do we find our identity? And this is the bottom line. If you don't get anything, I want you to get this. The way to avoid the comparison trap, the way to get out of the comparison game and free yourself from this vicious game is to find your identity in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We have a lot of other responsibilities in our lives and there's a sense in which we have other secondary identities as, as a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or a pastor or a father, or a girlfriend, or boyfriend. But if your identity, if the core of who you are is not rooted in Jesus Christ, if that is not where you look to find out who you need to be, then you are going to live the rest of your life discontent. Always just one step away from that perceived thing that you need. And so tonight, all I want to do is I want to look at one of the most profound passages in scripture it's in Ephesians chapter 1 so if you have your Bibles turn there if you don't I'll have it up on the screen but I want to look at five truths concerning our identity in Christ and I think if if, if we really meditate and ponder and think about and and believe by faith these truths about who we are in Christ if you've put your trust in Christ these truths are for you And these truths should be the mirror that you look at that reflect back to you to tell you who you are. Does that make sense? So let's jump in. Truth number one, we're chosen in Christ. It should be up on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the the key little phrase there is, in Christ, in Christ. If you have believed and put your trust in Christ, you are now united to Christ and everything he has, you now have. Every spiritual blessing that's available is now part of your life and you have access to. And it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The key point in this passage to me is that God saves us and chooses us. We don't choose God and save ourselves. God saves us and chooses us. We don't choose God and save ourselves. And I know that this is difficult for some of you. This passage says that He chose us before the foundations of the world. That means before we made our first sin or before we made our first righteous act, it didn't matter what we did. It wasn't our works that drew God's attention to us. It was before the world existed, God chose you in Christ. The cross was not plan B with God. It wasn't like plan A was Adam and Eve in the garden and they, you know, God thought they weren't going to sin. And then when they sinned, it's like, oh, now what do we do? We've got to think of another plan. Jesus dying on the cross was the plan from the very beginning. Because on the cross was God's justice and God's mercy meeting perfectly. And on the cross, God gets more glory than anywhere else in the world. God wanted to get his glory. And the best way to do that was on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, God has chosen us. God has called us out of this world of sin and brought us into His world of glory. Now, I, I don't have time to get into the whole God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but I can tell you this. In the Scriptures, there are two truths that, that are parallel, that they're not contradictory they're not competing, they're friends, and they run all throughout Scripture, and number one is that God is sovereign, and number two is that man has a responsibility. So what I'm saying tonight, for those of you who say, well, wait a minute, what if I'm not one of the ones who is chosen beforehand? The Bible also says, whosoever shall believe will be saved, will inherit eternal life, John three sixteen. There are commands after commands in the Scripture to choose to follow Christ. I don't know exactly how those things fit together. And maybe at another time we can speculate on that. But the purpose of Paul writing this in this passage was to comfort believers in the church of Ephesus. Knowing that I'm chosen is a comfort to me. Knowing that God is sovereign over my life. In your relationships, God is in control. Did you know that? With whatever struggles you're going through in your relationships, God is in control. Whatever disappointments in your relationships, God is in control. Whatever career disappointments, God is in control. Whatever job you didn't get or whatever job you're hoping for or if you're not satisfied with where you are in life, guess what? God is in control. He has a meaning and a purpose and a plan for your life if you're in Christ. He has you right where he wants you. And what he wants from us is to believe and trust in his good character. Because God works all things for good for those who love Him. And so we're right where God wants us to be. He's in control. Our finances, some of you maybe are in debt. God is in control. He's not surprised by that. I don't care if the debt is because of sin in the past or because of bad decisions. God can take bad decisions and make them good in your life. God can take the the sin in your life and use that to refine you and to change you. We are chosen in Christ. Secondly, we're adopted in Christ. And this is, this is huge. It's in verses 5 and 6. It says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You know, we have a worship pastor right now, uh, Drew, who is our worship pastor at the West Campus. He and his wife are going through an adoption uh, phase with a, uh, a young child in Haiti. And it has been, I mean, it has been a beating for them. It's taken months and months and months, and they're struggling with that. But they went to Haiti, and they identified a kid, and they, they said, we want to adopt this kid. And even though he's not here in the States yet, there was great news today that the, the court passed, um, pretty much made it wide open for them to have the kid. So praise God, it's going to happen. But even before it happened, that kid was their child. And everything that they have when he gets over here is going to be everything that he has. He is adopted. He is in the family now. And God says that for us, we were estranged from him because of sin, but now through Jesus Christ, he is adopting us back into his family. What's, What's interesting is in the Old Testament, the word father, which is what Paul uses here, he says to the, he says, uh, where is it? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of His will. But this idea of adoption is is God being our Father, and in the Old Testament, any time it used the term Father, which was only fourteen times in a large section of Scripture, it was in relation to the nation of Israel. Not one time was it for an individual. But when Jesus came, everything changed. In the Gospels, Jesus used the term over sixty times. In fact. Jesus always referred to God as Father except one time when he was on the cross and he was quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the cool thing. The word Jesus used for Father was, was not a formal word. It was an informal word in the Aramaic that a child would use to address their daddy. And so I've got two little girls, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I can't tell you how fun it is to come home after a long day and when they hear the key in the door I can hear them on the other side of the door yelling daddy, daddy, daddy and I hear them scurrying around there is something amazing and relational about hearing my kids say daddy because I am their daddy and when they were born there was nothing they did that, that, that caused me to um, there was no merit in them that made me want to be their daddy it was because they were from my DNA, my wife and my DNA. We, we stayed up late at night. They cried all the time. We, we didn't know what to do, and it was stressful. But we love them, and we will always love our two girls because they're ours. We, we, they're our possessions. They're, they're our gifts. They're our children. They're our daughters. And what Paul is saying here is that because we've been adopted by God the Father who reigns over the whole universe who is bigger than anything you can fathom, has chosen to call us sons and daughters in Christ. No longer slaves to sin, but set free from sin, and now sons and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges that come with that. How amazing is that if we can get our minds around the fact that we don't have to look to our left and right. We just need to look up to see who we are. And what God says throughout the New Testament is that if you're in Christ, you're my son and you're my daughter. And everything I have for Christ, I have for you. You're an adopted son, but you're just as if you're my natural son and daughter. It is amazing. A few verses, Romans 8:15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And finally, John 1:12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, he's written numerous books, just an amazing man, says this about God's fatherhood and our adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And yet, I think it's safe to say that many of us don't think of God as our Father on a day-in and day-out basis. And for some of you, it may be because your father on earth was not the best father in the world. And so the last thing you want to do is think of God as Father because of all the pain that's wrapped up in that Word. But I'm telling you, if you can let the Scriptures Change the way you think about that term. Understanding God as your father will change your whole relationship and daily life as a Christian. I think too many of us profess to be Christians and have genuinely put our trust in Christ, but functionally on a day-to-day basis we live as if God is some rule master and he's got this list of do's and don'ts and if we don't tip the scale to the do's then we feel like we failed and there's this distance that keeps getting created between you and God because you're not thinking of him as your daddy you're not thinking of him as someone who loves you and deeply cares for you when you get that into your mind it changes how you view yourself And it it helps you to not worry as much about what everybody else around you is doing. Uh, Number three, we're redeemed in Christ. And this is verses 7 through 10. Up on the screen. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And And it goes through... A bunch of just spiritually rich things that we we just don't have time for today but what i want to focus on is this idea of redemption all of us were born into sin slaves to sin and because of that we were separated from god but what god did was through his son jesus christ and his death on the cross he has redeemed us and that word is this concept of of ransom buying back someone the perfect picture in the old testament is moses and the israelites when they were in egypt they were in bondage. They were in slavery. There was no way out. And then God called Moses to be his representative. And Moses said, let my people go. We're probably all going to go watch that movie here in the next couple of weeks. The movie's coming out. But, but God, uh, Moses said, let my people go. And we all know the story. God delivered them. He parted the Red Sea. And it was this amazing deliverance from bondage. And you know what it was pointing to? It was pointing to a deeper reality... For everyone who's trusted in Christ, we have been released, we've been redeemed, we've been set free, we've been delivered from the bondage of sin. We don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. Whatever sins had a strong grip on me in the past don't have to have a strong grip on me right now. Whatever sin you're struggling with, whether it's the sin of sin, gossip or envy or pornography or anger or addictions, strong addictions that have gripped you and enslaved you in the past, through the gospel, you can be set free from every addiction, from every sin that's been that sin that keeps coming up and grabbing hold of you and pulling you back and not allowing you to move forward in your Christian life. It doesn't have to be that way because we've been redeemed in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, God has delivered you. The scripture talks about forgiveness, which is in this passage. That is a part of this redemption that God's given us. Psalm 103, 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Isaiah 44:22 I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah 31:34 For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There's numerous passages. Finally, First John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God has redeemed us and God has forgiven us. And number four, um, which I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time on, we have an inheritance in Christ. And so for my family, my, my parents aren't going to leave me and my brothers. I've got two brothers a whole lot. But one thing we do have is we have Land. And in Newburgh, Texas, we've got many, many acres that are my mom's that she got from her, her dad who was a farmer. And that is an inheritance that, that we're going to have later on in life. It's awaiting our retrieval. And in the same way, those of us who are in Christ, we have an inheritance in heaven that is awaiting us as we live through this life. And in, when Jesus comes back or when we go to see Jesus, that inheritance is for us. And then number five... Finally, we're sealed in Christ. And this is in verses 14, 13 and 14. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, real quick, how, how were they saved? By hearing the word of truth, the gospel, and then believing in it. That's how every single one of us in this room have come to faith in Christ, who've come to faith in Christ. So as I'm listing all of these promises that are for those who are in Christ, some of you may be saying, well, I don't know if I'm in Christ. Right here is the answer. When you hear the word of truth and respond in faith and believe, you will be saved. But the last part of that verse says, we're sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. And this idea of sealing is like a stamp and it can't be changed. It can't be broken. We are the possession of God. It it is something that, that... Nothing can snatch us out of God's hands. If we're adopted and chosen and redeemed and forgiven and sealed by the Holy Spirit, why do we need to be looking to our left and our right? So here we go. Back to the questions as we close out. Where do you look for your identity? What's the mirror that you're looking in that that you want it to reflect back who you are? The fact is, if it's not Jesus Christ, you will never be satisfied. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ, even good things in your life, you will never be satisfied. You will never be content. You will always play the comparison game. But if you find your identity in Jesus Christ, there is deep contentment and tranquility, which we talked about a few weeks ago. That that inner peace that can't be shaken based on your circumstances is available to you in Christ. And so for those of us who are believers, we're sons and daughters of God. We're chosen, redeemed, adopted, forgiven, loved, and set apart as his own possession. And we have an inheritance waiting for us. And so I want to close with, with one more quote. This was a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a journalist in England in the 20th century. He was a phenomenal writer and uh, was an atheist for most of his life and towards the end of his life, he converted to Christianity and was just a highly influential person who had wealth and fame and a lot of things. And here's what he says as we close out. I may, I suppose, regard myself for pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets, and that's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. I don't know what that means, something English. That's success furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly if they care to, and he was very old at this time, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact in our time. I'm quoting him right now 50 years later, so he did do that. That's fulfillment. So he was fulfilled in his occupation. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiple, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing. a positive impediment measured against one drought of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Meaning it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, that water, that fulfilling water, is available. And then he says, what, I ask myself, does life hold? What is there in the works of time, in the past, now and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water? Jesus said in John 7, if a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Are you tired of the comparison game? Would you love to live a life where you can walk into a room and forget about yourself and not worry about what people are thinking about you or how you measure up to what everybody else looks like? Are you longing to live a life where you can reach your God given potential and not be sidetracked by all the people around you? If you are, I'm telling you, it's found in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Him tonight, that verse is clear. Whoever may come. And drink of the water that I provide doesn 't matter who you are doesn 't matter where you came from you don 't have to live the comparison game the rest of your life let 's pray father god what what an amazing passage of scripture, what amazing truths that are available to Anyone who puts their hope and faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross, Lord, I thank you that in Christ I've been adopted and redeemed and restored and justified and forgiven and sealed by Your Spirit. I thank you, Father, that You're in control of of my life, that You're sovereign over all things, and that I can live life with joy and with passion. And with a self-forgetfulness where I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder to see where I'm at and where I need to be. And so Lord, tonight with, with everyone in this room, I, I, I pray that, that this message takes root. That they don't leave the building tonight and forget about everything that I've said. But that they will hear these words and hear these truths from scripture and genuinely seek you and say, Lord, help me to see my identity in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and all that he is for his children. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.